We're blessed this morning to have with us a special guest minister. Our guest preacher today is Pastor Thomas Doey, who is the overseer of the Resurrection Power Ministries based in Monrovia, Liberia, but they have branches in other branches in different countries in West Africa, East Africa, and all the way in the Philippines. Pastor Dewey is married to his wife, Christine Carroll. Together they have three children. Amen. The Lord placed upon my heart to invite him to come and minister. He's based in Monrovia. He's in the U.S. actually now. Will soon be headed back to continue his work in Liberia and elsewhere. But I've gotten to hear him share the word on, on our radio, um, radio harvest that we, that we operate in, in Liberia. He's one of the pastors that um, have a, a program that he, on a weekly basis, moderates. <clears throat> Excuse me. In addition, one of the things that I really, really felt was lacking in the body of Christ there was a revelation of the new covenant, the grace of God. It's just for a lot of churches, this gospel is not understood. Um, there are people who are zealous, but zealous without knowledge. And as I interacted with him, I realized that God had given him a revelation of the new covenant. And so one of the things we asked him to do with one or two other uh, men of God was to host a radio program which we call Faith of Our Fathers. And the whole purpose was to begin to teach Pauline theology so that pastors, ministers, God's people can start to get a true revelation of the grace of God. Because it, has, it is the gospel of that grace that is the power to save. And when it's preached and understood and believed, it changes lives. It changes families. And so Reverend Doe, we want to welcome you to Harvest. Thank you. God bless you. Would you please come and would you please stand now and let's receive this man of God. Come on, we can do better than that. I believe God has given his servant a word for us and I'm going to be listening to hear what God says to be. God bless you. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning to everybody. Merry Christmas to all. What a blessing to be here in Orkney. I'm absolutely humbled by the privilege to be here. Bishop, I cannot thank you enough. And I'm so grateful for having me come here. The fact of the matter is I don't have to be here at all. Uh, it turned out that a father has chosen to affirm me. That's why I'm here. And I don't take this for granted. I'm absolutely humble. And I cannot thank you enough. I'm also very grateful to Sis Kalia, who has been very instrumental coordinating my being here, um, making sure everything is, is okay. I've been in Baltimore a week now, particularly in Frederick, and it's nice being here, moderate temperature. Uh, <laughs> um, my wife wants me to particularly greet all of you. Um, she would have loved to be here, but had to go back to Monrovia for a job. 
I'm here and I'm enjoying everything. I also want to be thankful to my principal host, Henry. Henry is in Minneapolis. Henry and his wife, Ayele, do a great job helping me just coordinating my itinerary, flying back and forth, whether it's in the day or in the night, it's at the airport. Uh, I can't thank him enough. You know, a month or so ago, I've been thinking, why would Bishop ask someone like me to come here and preach? I mean, why do you say that, that you don't know that he hasn't taught you? What do I have to offer? Um, and it hasn't been the, an easy thought, but eventually, I came to make peace with myself. But I just concluding, if Bishop asked me to come and preach here in Orkney, then I better just come and preach. That's what I'm here. So by God's grace, I trust we are going to have an interesting time, um, and you will never be the same again. You know, <laughs> whatever you are hearing, if it is not changing your life, we have to question whether it's the gospel. But if it is changing your life, we can be sure that the grace of God is at work. That is what we are um, relying on this morning for the next couple of minutes, and I'm absolutely sure you will never be the same again. Are you ready? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. And we'll take a couple of verses. Beginning from um, verse number 13, we end at 18. It says, when Jesus came into the coals of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say Elias and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and say unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, let's take the last one, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bind. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on the earth shall be loose in heaven. Father, thank you for the blessing of being alive, the great honor of being in the ministry, great privilege to be here and to share your word with your people. I, I ask you, Lord, by your grace, that you will cause the dew of heaven to fall upon us, that you will grant me the privilege to speak simply, clearly, coherently, yet powerfully for the transformation of lives, for the advancement of the kingdom, and for the glory of your own name. This we ask with thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen. Glory to God. Now, it is absolutely a very difficult task, if not impossible, to talk about the subject we want to discuss this morning. I want to talk about Jesus, the church, and the kingdom. That kind of topic invokes all kinds of um, issues and, you know, 
very fundamental principles of the kingdom. But I thought that we should pick them up, hopefully, as we synchronize those very important concepts. It will give us an opportunity to view, um, or should I say, to begin to think a little more deeply about the subject of the kingdom of God in relation to our responsibility as believers, especially considering the times in which we live. And I trust that the Lord will help us because at the end of the day, we want to, amongst other things, achieve the following. We want to deepen our knowledge of Jesus as the foundation, the centrality, and the defining factor of the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, to discover and appreciate the context of the church as Jesus proclaimed it. And then number three, we want to maximize the effectiveness of living the Christian life naturally, especially in the 21st century. It might interest you to know that Jesus, having been with his disciples for close to three years now, at this point in time when this text comes into view and he's asking the disciples that have been with him all this why, what are people saying about me? You may think that that is an, that is an unnecessary question. Because they have been with him, they've seen the miracles. In fact, in St. John chapter 6, Peter will say to Jesus, Thou hast the word of eternal life. They've seen him as their Messiah. Many times they wanted to enthrone him politically by force, and Jesus will evade them. So, why is he asking now as to what people are thinking about him? Why should that kind of question be important? Don't forget Jesus is nearing the cross. Don't also forget that Jesus' ministry was so um, tension-packed that almost anything he said kind of provoked one kind of controversy or the other. The disciples themselves have been having difficult times really zeroing on, on who this master is that they are following. Don't forget, many of them had left him anytime Jesus got to a very critical point about the explanation of this gospel he came to preach. Yes, we understand Peter had been with him and the rest of the disciples for all this time, but very strangely, Peter and the rest of the disciples, their knowledge of the Lord Jesus was fundamentally lacking. And if you want to know what that is, when Jesus asked, what do people say I am, everybody was saying one kind of thing or the other. Some people are saying, you are, the, you are, you are John the Baptist, you are Jeremiah, you are one of the prophets. They could quote what people were saying. Then Jesus said, what do you say, having heard what people are saying, that you say I am? Now nobody could say anything. When Peter eventually gave the answer he gave, Jesus said, Peter, it wasn't an opinion. That is to say, where Peter or the rest of the disciples who gave their opinion, it would not have been different from what other people were saying, the popular opinion of who Jesus was. Number three, the most important thing is this, that when Jesus began to talk about the fact that he would, be, he would suffer and he would die at the hands of evil men, Peter began to rebuke him. So this theory recently tells us that much as Peter was excited and has been one of those faithful followers of Jesus, he was fundamentally flawed in his knowledge of who Jesus was. He had no problem accepting as a Messiah because you have to understand also that, that a, a fundamental preoccupation, a major preoccupation of Jewish thought was their Messiah. And they didn't have problem accepting Jesus as their Messiah. 
That is why, in fact, they wanted an intruder in our skin because as a Messiah, he came to give them political freedom. That was, to a large extent, a kind of perception that people had about Jesus, among other things. And Peter and the rest of the disciples weren't different from that kind of opinion. That's why when Jesus talked about his dying, which, in fact, is a reference to the core mission for which he came here, Peter would stand up against it. So now you understand why Jesus was asking them, what are people saying about me, and what are you saying about me? Especially so, considering that Jesus is going to face a cross. He's going to, for the ultimate purpose for which he came here. He wants to make sure that the people with whom he is going to entrust this ministry are fully grounded in this truth. So I'm wondering this morning, could it be possible that some of us here are having what I want to call an elitist version of the gospel or a quote-unquote updated version of the gospel that does not include the, the, the core mission of Jesus? We're having a kind of Jesus that we appreciate if he answers our prayers, the kind of Jesus that is popular and it is accepted by popular opinion. It, could that be the kind of Jesus that we love and that we follow all the while? Because Peter and the rest of the disciples, they have a very different view of that kind of Jesus. You can imagine the wrecks of the ministry to be entrusted in people who did not have a deepening knowledge and overwhelming and compelling conviction of the core mission for which Jesus came. When Peter finally said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it struck a chord, a hit at the very heart of Jesus' mission. Because you knew, the Bible said in Matthew 1.21, uh, this is an angel speaking to Mary, you shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sin. Jesus is the savior of the world from sin. But he had to be a son first. Not just a messiah. He had to be a son first. So as a son of God, he's called Jesus. As Jesus, he's a savior. As savior, he dies on the cross. That was lacking in Peter's perception of Jesus. They didn't have problem with Jesus being the demand where Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. Because the Bible says, as the angel was speaking to Mary, that you're going to have a child according as he has been spoken by the prophets in the Old Testament, that God is with us. They're comfortable with God being with them. They're comfortable with the things Jesus will do for them. The, the provision of food, the casting of devil, the healing of the sick. They can understand that but when they came to Jesus going on the cross, they began to reject that. So Jesus' immediate response testified to the fact that flesh and blood did not reveal what Peter said. That was a revelation. So the revelation of Jesus Christ as the son of the living God is the bedrock of the church. It sets the standard for the church and it is a defining character as to whether it is truly the church or just a system of religion. So how do we know you are the church? How do we know you are a child of God? How do we know you are born again? How do we know you are an authentic believer? Not because you lack the name Jesus. Not because you are a member of any church necessarily. That question is based on what you say of him. What you say of him is a function of what you know of him. What you know of him then is going to determine how you accept him and how you believe him. So if Jesus is just a good leader... If Jesus is just Messiah, if Jesus is just the Christ, the anointed one, I'm afraid your understanding of this Jesus is insufficient. If you do wonderful things, 
for humanity. If you're involved with helping people through humanitarian and development initiatives, all in the name of a good Jesus who loves people, I'm afraid you truly are not subscribing to this Jesus that saves. To not recognize the sonship of Jesus is to invalidate our redemption. Because it takes the son to go on the cross. To not recognize the son of Jesus is effectively to despise the grace of God. Because the brutality of the cross is what secured the grace of God for us. And if your knowledge of Jesus doesn't take you to the cross, I'm afraid you are following the Jesus that doesn't redeem. If your knowledge of Jesus, if the Jesus you are following doesn't lead you to the cross, you are following the Jesus who only has religion. And that kind of Jesus cannot guarantee a blessing, cannot guarantee security. So why does the enemy attacking this fundamental truth in the body of Christ, especially in the 21st century? Why is that so? Why is he doing that? He's doing that because of the cross. The mention of Jesus as son of God carries direct implication to the cross. Because he shall bring forth a son, the angel will say to Mary, and I shall call his name Jesus, Matthew 121, because he shall save his people from their sin. The cross is an instrument of our redemption. However brutal it is. God became a son through Jesus to principally accomplish two things. Number one, to reveal himself to us. We are told in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 that he's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God tabernacling with his people. God coming to dwell in the community of men. We are told Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. We are told in St. John 14, 9, Jesus will say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. God became the Son to reveal himself to us, number one. Number two, God became the Son in order to die for our sins. John will say in St. John chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31, many other signs Jesus truly did in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, number one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Number two, the son of the living God. It's based upon that that when you believe him, you will be safe. The signs were done so that you will know that Jesus is not just a Christ, but he's the son of the living God. He has to be a son, a man, in order for him to die. If you have a Jesus that doesn't die, that doesn't take you to the cross, that doesn't face the brutality of the cross, you are following a Jesus that doesn't save. I want to tell you three fundamental things about the sonship of Jesus that is so stressed in this conversation. Number one, the sonship of Jesus is, is, is a representation, or should I say, carries the meaning that incarnation is encoded in his sonship. The incarnation is encoded in the sonship of Jesus. For what the Lord could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the incarnation. And for sin, condemn sin in the flesh. The incarnation is encoded in the sonship of Jesus. Point number two, Redemption itself is encoded 
in the Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Number three about the sonship of Jesus is that it condemns sin in the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 3, for what the Lord could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That is what Peter was resisting. As disciple as he was. That brings us to the next point, the church. Jesus will say it upon this massive revelation that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church. I will construct a system of people that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's verse 18 of the text in Matthew chapter 16. What does, if I may ask, the city of Caesarea Philippi have to do with this conversation. Remember the text opens by saying, when Jesus and the disciples had gone to Caesarea Philippi, is there something about the setting of this story that has important implications on the message Jesus is conveying to us? I want to say four things about the city. The city of Caesarea Philippi carried a political connotation. That city was a name that merged both Caesar, Caesar's Augustus of Rome, the man that had controlled the world that was oppressing Asia, as well as Philip, who was a descendant of Herod. Philip was a descendant of the dynasty of Herod. Those two political leaders carry serious implications on the ministry of Jesus because these two people were controlling the political system that opposed everything that Jesus said and came for. That's about the city. Number two, there is an ethnic dimension to the issue of the city because you realize that Herod, the Herod dynasty, was an evil political leadership over Judea that fought against everything Jesus came. You remember Matthew chapter 2? It was Herod that killed all the babies in order to eliminate Jesus. The same Herod is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. This Herod is a descendant of Esau. You go back to the story of Genesis chapter 25. So there's a whole ethnic dimension to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Number three, there is a religious connotation to the mention of Caesarea Philippi that has direct implication on the meaning of this text. Because this place actually was a convergence of all kinds of Roman and Greek mythology and idolatry and all kinds of idol worship, including offering of children to fire. That religious system actually determined and detected to the way of life in our city and of course in the wider Roman and Greek world. So there's a religious or should I say spiritual connotation to the conversation about who Jesus is. Number four, this place was a center of historical conflict of warfare. Historians will say that this place is a real Philippi that was named at that time was an ancient city where battles were won and lost for control of Asia, including the market being reward. So these four elements about the city will bring about the issue of political oppression, economic depravity, social imbalances, cultural complexities, all of them impacting on the way the people understood who Jesus was and how they responded to it. Do not forget 
that most of the people who follow Jesus will be people you consider today as grassrooters. The prominent people who believe in Jesus will not announce it publicly because of all of these cultural and social complications. Almost everything Jesus said, almost everywhere he went, every good thing he did provoked one kind of controversy. So Jesus didn't have any easy ministry. A lot of us tend to believe that because he was the son of God, he just did things with our struggle. I would dare to say that Jesus probably had a worse time than we are having in the 21st century. These were not easy times. And obviously all of these conditions were impacting on the way the people responded to Jesus, including his very disciples. What do... All of these things about the implication of the city have to do with the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, when Jesus said, Peter, upon what you have just revealed that came from my father and not from you, by the way, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All of these things we talk about the implication of the city are a reference to the gates. In fact, some scholars who say, that this conversation took place very close to the entry gate of the city of Caesarea Philippi. And if that were to be the case, Jesus was trying to say, in other words, that the symbolism of the gate, which actually meant that everybody in the city was kept under the control of that gate and regulated who came in and who didn't come in. That talks about opposition. That talks about resistance. That talks about constraints. That talks about limitation. So all these four things we talk about, the city are actually symbolized by the gate, the physical gate that Jesus might have been referencing. In other words, Jesus is saying that the church functions in the context of conflict. And that is something that a lot of us haven't come to appreciate. When Jesus mentioned the church, he mentioned it in the context of conflict. Anytime you mention the church, you are declaring the war, whether you like it or not. Anytime you mention Jesus as the son of God who came to save the world, you are invoking the conflict, whether you are aware of about it or not. It is either a covert conflict or an overt conflict or both put together. Whatever the issue is, it may be political, it may be cultural, it may be religious, it may be social. Whatever it is, there is always going to be a conflict. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible calls us the salt of the life and the light of the world. If the world sits in the context of darkness and we are light, you can then begin to understand the conflict we are in. We are in a theater of an existential conflict, ladies and gentlemen. This is not meant to fear you. This is not meant to emphasize anything negative. This is simply to give you a, real, a realization of what we are involved with so you can wake up and know that you're ready for battle and combat the enemy with the conviction that Jesus, Jesus is not just a Christ. It's not just one good man. It's not just one good leader. It's not just one historical leader. Jesus is the Son of God. If you are uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, you are not a believer. You are not subscribing to the full knowledge of this truth. And ladies and gentlemen, we cannot afford to back down on this. We cannot apologize for saying this. We cannot apologize for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And in that sonship, it's encoded our redemption. In that redemption, it's a guarantee of His grace. The church is set in the context of an existential conflict. Number two, when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, He meant the church was actually a strategy. We have so formalized the church that I'm afraid we have disabled the church 
of the ever-present practicality that we are supposed to demonstrate on a daily basis. Have you realized that Jesus didn't even give any format for the church? He didn't give any format. What we know as a church today evolves with time. And people do different things in different places and they are not necessarily wrong. What is that so? Because the church is a strategy. The Bible says, For we speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, even in the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 7 to 10. The church is described as a body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as a body. And as a body, it talks about harnessing our diversity and unity. The church is also described as a house, First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and as a house, it talks about the structuring, the ordering, the patterns of the body of Christ. The church is also described as a family, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, as a family, it talks about the place of belonging. All of these metaphors speak to the internal nature of the church in its outward expression as a strategy. A strategy is meant to show that what we're doing in expressing the word of God for our lives may not even be appreciated by the enemy. But that's what the Bible says, if he had known what it meant for him to crucify the Lord, he would not have. But that's what a strategy is. As sort of the life, we are supposed to heal the word. We are supposed to give taste to the word we live in. We are supposed to preserve the word from decay. And we are supposed to stimulate test for the things of God. That's why we are the sort of the word. That also comes with an important implication as well. Because as salt, we are basically seasoned. And nobody brings the same quantity of seasoning to match the same quantity of food. And sometimes we may feel overwhelmed by all the things going around us, but that's okay. We just need to be salt. We just need to be salt. People may not even see us visibly, but they cannot deny the effect of our presence in the world. That brings us to the last point, then I close. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Key is a symbol of authority or the symbol of access. To access into the realm of possibility. What did Jesus mean when he talked about giving the disciples, giving us the keys of the kingdom? You have to firstly understand what the kingdom is. God is a kingdom God. The church is an instrument of the kingdom. And by kingdom God, what do we mean? We talk about the rulership of God. And that comes in basically three dimensions. Number one, when you get born again, your life becomes a domain over which God rules. Luke 17 Verse 21, the kingdom of God is within you. You become the territory initially over which God rules. Then the church has been sought in light of the word. It's an expression of the kingdom of God. And of course, we have the third and last ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. When Jesus comes, not as an apostle, when he comes, not as a lamb, he comes as the ruler of the word. Why is that important as I close? Because as sought in light of the word, as people who have been brought into a covenant relationship, knowing that Jesus is a Christ and the Son of God, our job is to ensure that everywhere we go, everything we do, whatever we are wired to do, is actually an expression of the church life. The people that are in this church who are doing work, I suspect do not constitute more than 10% of the congregation here. And we consider those people are the, are, as the ones who are working for God. If that is the case, what's going on the rest of the 90%? What are you doing? 
May I submit to you that your calling, your career, the things you are involved with, whether you're working with the federal government or the state government, whether you are a wife or a teacher, whether you are a law enforcement officer, that is the work of God. That is the work of God. That is the work of God. Do you know Paul said, First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, that if a man does not know, does not cater, does not provide for his household, he's worse than an unbeliever. What's about domestic provision that would disqualify a man from being a believer? Because a father and a husband, when you take care of your family, you are not just taking care of your family as such, you are doing your ministry. He said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, if a man does not live properly with his wife according to knowledge, even his prayer will be hindered. What does living with your wife knowledgeably have to do with your spiritual life? Because living with your wife knowledgeably is doing the work of God as well. Jesus was more a carpenter for a longer time than he was a preacher. And the Bible will say, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus preached one gospel, before he healed one person, before he cast out one devil, God was pleased with him. Why? Because at age 30, he was an accomplished carpenter. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. What is it you are called to do? Law enforcement officer, professional teacher, venture capitalist, engineer, business person, driver, whatever it is that you're called to do, you're doing the work of the ministry. I want to challenge you today to help you by the special grace of God, gain a better appreciation of what you do every day. Because you come to this church, the average time you spend in church for a week may not even be more than 10 hours. If you take 10 hours against 168 hours for the week, and you are only using 10 in church, where are you actually living for God? It's not in church. Everybody come here and they conform. If you are a TV, it's unlikely you will still here. If you are a rude person, it's unlikely you will be rude because everybody is coming to church here. So here's actually not the place where you live in your Christian life. You live in your Christian life where you spend your life. And where you spend your life is where your career is. There is where your Christian life is lived. We must go out every day. If it is just greeting someone, if it is hawking someone, if it is teaching a child, if it is loving someone, it is, if it is balancing the books, if it is repairing the car, if it is making a telephone call, if it is standing on the road to ensure that people are safe, whatever it is you are called to do, you are doing the work of the ministry, and by that you are becoming salt of the eyes and light of the world. I pray for you today that the grace of God will be renewed in your life, your sense of the grace of God will be renewed to appreciate what the Lord has called us to do. Shall we rise up? My time is up. We want to pray two prayers. The first prayer I want us to pray, I'm going to ask you kindly to please close your eyes. And I'm going to ask if anyone is in this church today, first Sunday after Christmas, 2021, and you do not know if Jesus came now, whether you will be raptured. If you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that if Jesus came, I will be raptured. Or if you were to die now, and you say, Pastor, I'm not sure whether I will go to heaven or go to hell. If you are the person who's not sure about these two questions, you are the person I want to pray for. And if there's any doubt in your heart about what I've just said, 
I will ask you to kindly slip up your hand so we pray with you quickly. If you are that person who would you say, I'm not sure if Jesus came, whether I will be raptured. Or if I were to die now, whether I will go to heaven or not. You say, I'm not sure. If you're not sure, you are the person I'm referring to. And if that is the case, I will appreciate where you to kindly slip up end of your hand, whether your right or your left hand, so we can see. All right. Second prayer. I want to pray for everyone here today. For a reinforcement of the call of God upon your life. Today, however briefly I've said it, the call of God is not just for those who preach like I'm preaching now. The call of God is for every believer, no matter where your career finds you, no matter where your interest of life finds you, you are called to make a change there. And if you are, if you are serving people, you may be doing it for profit, but you are doing the ministry. You are serving God. And I want to pray for you today, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you will begin to take your career, you will begin to take the things that, that, that you are involved with, the things that turn you on, the things you love to do every day, you will begin to see it as a ministry. You begin to see it as a call of God. That is how the kingdom of God influences the system of this world. That is how you do battle. Doing battle is not just praying in tongues and casting out devils. That's a part of it, all right? Doing battle also is to consciously do what you do in the marketplace with a sense of ministry, with a sense of obligation. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that the hand of the Lord comes upon you with a renewed reinforcement, with fresh oil, with fresh dew, that there will be a revelation by the Spirit of God that will broaden the horizon of your life, of the understanding of what you are called to do. And henceforth, you will begin to do what you are doing with a sense of obligation, with a sense of ministry. And what you do will make impact. The people that cross your path will feel the love of God. The people you meet are going to feel that Jesus is real. The people with whom you talk, the things you do, whatever it is, that the Spirit of the Lord will be more welcome in what you're doing. And I pray for an acceleration in all you do. I pray that the Lord will cause you to have a refreshing, a renewal, an accelerated restoration that you will catch up for all the years of losses, that you will make up for all the years of delay, that the things you haven't treated with a sense of ministry, now the oil of God comes upon you and, 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 and suddenly suddenly the hand of the Lord picks you up and you begin to cover ground fast. I pray in the name of Jesus for breakthrough in your life. I pray that supernatural protection will never depart from your house, that as you go on and you come in, the Lord will watch over you with angelic protection. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you will go to bed completely fulfilled because of what you will do. You will sleep and you will wake up refreshed and ready to go to the next level. I pray that every step you take will be guided by the Spirit of the Lord. I pray the Lord graces your speech that everyone who hears you will receive peace and will receive love. I pray for superior intelligence that henceforth everything you do is going to be characterized by competitive advantage by the cutting edge of distinction and excellence let that be your portion in Jesus name amen thank you God bless you hallelujah thank you pastor Doe. God bless you sir amen you know, it's amazing. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit 
The Holy Spirit is more at work and is at work in powerful ways and we don't realize or recognize it. You know, as he was ministering on the importance of the revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, I said, wait a minute. When I came to give communion for some reason, what came out of my mouth was that the Son of God became the Son of Man. So sons of men can become the Son of God. That was the Holy Spirit bearing witness to what was to come. Uh, then, again, I got up here before these thoughts came to my mind. I started to talk about him coming again as Lord to establish his kingdom. That's not how I usually take communion. I don't think I've ever used that in relationship to communion. Again, the Holy Spirit was testifying of the word that was to come. I talked about when we come to church that it's not just to meet him but it's also that we as a church are to meet one another minister to one another be strengthened by that how God ministers through us that was again a testimony of what was to come as he reinforced for us how important the church is God has spoken. Before Jesus Christ began his ministry, God had John the Baptist to bear witness to the word. Hear ye him, to the word. So I pray that we've heard the word today. Now, thank God for, for technology because we get to hear it again. And I encourage you to do so because there are a lot of concepts he had to deal with very quickly. And so you probably need to hear the message again and again to fully grasp all that God was saying to us through his servant this morning concerning the revelation of the Son, concerning the church, concerning the kingdom. One of the things that I hope you really, really grasp was that when you say Jesus, Son of God, that's war. You're, you're, it's, it's, there's warfare. And when we talk about the church being built, you're talking about warfare. And I'm concerned that many of us don't have that mentality. That we, 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 we are excited about Emmanuel, the God who is, meets our needs and, and you know helps me here, helps me here. Thank God he does that. But too many of us don't have the revelation of the church as an instrument of war and of believers as warriors placed here to advance his kingdom. We don't. We don't have a revelation of the importance of ministry. You know, we just have this passive attitude of receiving 
and to understand that because foundationally at the very root of, of our reason for being is this call to advance the kingdom and to do so forcefully. May I be honest with you? My heart is broken that a day after Christmas, so many folks just chose to stay home. How long are we going to treat this kingdom assignment as though it's just a matter of convenience? When it's convenient, I'll do it. When it's not convenient, I'll do it. I'll, we ate a lot of food yesterday, and, and so now we just want to relax. Can you imagine that? Because that's why some folks aren't here today. They had such a good time yesterday. They've got up this morning and said, I'll just stay home. Folks, that is not the message God sent us today. <laughs> 2022 is going to be a year of new beginnings, and I pray by the grace of God that we truly begin again. And all of us, including me, need to reflect on why we're here. The nature of this church, the church, the nature of the members of the body, the body, the nature of the kingdom, the warfare that we're in. This is not a time of peace. There's peace between us and God, but there's no peace between us and the enemy and the world. More than ever, the battle is raging. And the love of many is why sin called. Don't let it be true of you. Don't let it be true of me, God, and don't let it be true of this church. This is not a time to relax and take it easy. We told you last week that Joseph and Mary, in order to be the instruments God called them to, had to be willing for their relationship with Jesus to ruin a lot of things. Ruin their reputation. Ruin his business. Ruin his comfort because he had to now flee and become a refugee. There's nothing about the Christmas story that should encourage us to relax. When it comes to the mission and to simply live lives for God based upon whether it's convenient or not. May God deliver us from that spirit. And may God raise up a people who are passionate. After Peter got the revelation of that who Jesus was and grew in that revelation, Peter was prepared to have his neck chopped off or to hang up upside down and be crucified. May the revelation of Christ and what needs to happen in this world and our role in it as individuals and as the church become so real that if we had to lay down our lives physically, we would do so. He said, yeah, I would do it. You can't deny yourself the little comforts you think you would do that. Couldn't deny yourself an extra hour of sleep to come and be in church this morning. What are you going to deny yourself?
I'll be honest with you, I'm, gonna, I'm just opening my heart. I'm saying, Lord, what kind of disciples have I produced? That's where I am right now. After all of these years of preaching and teaching, what type of disciples have we produced? Got a handful of people who are really passionate, but not very many. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit who lives in us will grant us repentance. Where I fall short, I repent. Where this congregation falls short, we repent. We truly want to be the church that you are building that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. In our year of new beginning, remove those things that hinder and reestablish those things, O oh God, that will empower and equip us to move forward in unity fully committed to you and to our mission. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you.